Why is people-pleasing such a thing for some people? We'll look at that in our coaching tip for the week. And in our interview segment, we have Zoe Pallier, a litigator-turned-leadership coach, entrepreneur, as well as a learning and development professional. We hope you enjoy the episode today. And remember, something powerful resides within you. I'm here to support you in seeing it and creating it. People-pleasing. The desire to make everyone around you happy, even at the expense of yourself. On the outset, this actually might look like you're helping others, but people-pleasing is secretly a covert way to control and manipulate people. Yeah, I know, scary. (laughs) See, we think that we're assisting others and that we're being kind and generous and open-hearted when we're trying to please other people. But in reality, it's a way to stay safe from ourselves. We're afraid that if people don't like us, we're not worthy of something, or we're not good enough in the world for what we're doing. So we use control and manipulation to manipulate our reality into thinking that people like us. So the first example I have of this is caring for others before yourself. My favorite example is moms. I think moms are incredible. They always put their children ahead of themselves, which on the outside seems like the natural thing we should do. And this is usually at the expense of them. So what I see is that moms burn themselves out or they give all their energy and time and focus to their children without sourcing themselves first. It is actually a form of people pleasing (laughs) to make sure that other people see you as the mom you wanna be, but also that you yourself are convincing yourself that you're doing your job, even though it's depleting you. Another example of this is saying the thing that you think others want to hear. Sometimes my brothers ask me for advice, and when I was younger, I used to just say the thing that I think they wanted to hear so that they would feel good. And I was the good sister in their eyes. And now I've learned that the more honest and authentic I can be without appeasing them, even though it might cause friction in the moment, my brothers and I can actually be real with each other instead of pleasing each other to be loved and safe. The third example of this is dampening your feelings in order to not cause conflict or ripples with people. So that's sort of like the example I just gave with my brothers, but another way to look at this is at work. So sometimes you might not want to say that you're uncomfortable with something at work or that you disagree with something that your boss is saying. And in the moment, you stifle that instinct so that you don't cause conflict, that you go along with the flow And you don't actually have to be the one that's disliked in the moment. So consider when you're controlling your environment or you're controlling other people or manipulating a situation, you're not actually getting the true authentic version of yourself in the world that gets to be seen or heard. And underneath all of that is just a desire to be loved for who you are. People pleasing. Hey everyone, welcome to Powerful Women in Change. Today I have with me Zoe Pallier. What I want you to know about Zoe is she is the biggest heart I've ever met. You'll see why, I'm sure, in this interview. So welcome, Zoe. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. We were just talking about your last name, and I love that story. Do you mind telling it again? 
<laughs> yeah. So um, my grandfather immigrated from Macedonia. And when he did years ago, uh, he had to change his name. He wasn't allowed to keep his Macedonian name. And so his name was actually Stoyanov and Paliare was a nickname of his. And so he assumed it as his last name. He never changed it back. And when he got here, it became Palier. And so we are the only ones. I found it so fascinating because what you do is you're a litigator turned leadership coach with your eye on social justice. That's right. You are all over social justice, which we're going to get into. Um, But how cool that it already starts with an immigration story. Definitely. And I think, I mean, there's no question, and I'm sure we will get into this, that my parents, both of whom, uh, my dad's dad was an immigrant and my mom herself immigrated to Canada when she was about 13. And there's no question that their roots and their stories have a huge influence on my life and why it is that uh, social justice is such an important part of it. Man, that's so cool. Well, tell me, how does a litigator become a coach? (laughs) Great question. (laughs) Question I get a lot and I'm like, you just do. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But uh, the real answer is I was always, there are kind of two parts of my personality. Like I've always been a coach naturally my whole life. Um, When I was in high school, I would have friends constantly calling me for, you know, advice or to help talk them through things. And I remember my parents used to say, you should charge for your services. And I, which I thought at the time was a joke and would laugh about. And, you know, the other sort of side of my personality and something that's a really important part of my life now, of course, is is that social justice component. I was kind of always an advocate. And so I feel like the advocate side of me decided that I was going to go and try out the practice of law. And I'm so glad that I did. I learned a ton and I enjoyed litigating, but the majority of time, no one really tells you this when you go to law school, but lawyers actually read and write for a living pretty much. That's what they do. And there's an element of client interaction and there's an element of, you know, um, advocacy if you're, if you're a litigator, but at the end of the day, the bulk of the job is reading and writing, which I don't actually love. I can do it. (laughs) Um, but I love the human interaction side of things. And so at some point I realized I was unhappy and I was spending so much time in my office just by myself. And mm. uh, I was working yeah. as a coach and my coach asked me what I wanted to do. And I, I didn't expect, I hadn't been thinking about it, but the answer that came out of my mouth was I want to become a coach. And so. And that's so amazing. I, yeah. I feel like that's something that, that we should have, like, it should be a prerequisite for law school. Like, by the way, you will be doing yes it's I honestly like now in hindsight I'm like why don't these just tell people this at least you should know and if you love reading and writing then awesome and if you don't then maybe I mean there are some areas of law that aren't completely that but it's a lot of the job yeah that's that's not the first time I've heard that from lawyers so I'm with you yeah Yeah. (laughs) um yeah so you're you're based in Canada that's where your practice is yeah that's right 100% I love that uh what is it like doing leadership development in Canada during this time in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, it's been really interesting. I'm really, I'm enjoying the work. Um, I, it's hard for me to really compare. I've worked with some people in the U.S. and I think, honestly, there are a lot of similarities. But I think one of the things that I'm loving about being in this space right now is 
I mean, loving isn't maybe necessarily the right way to put it, because on the one hand, we have like a reckoning around race that is both very important. And there's a lot of really awful things that are happening that are really bringing this to the surface. But what it's doing is it's actually creating a space where leaders, businesses are now actually really actively interested in investing in the kind of leadership training and EDI programming that is something that's so important to me and that I've been trying to push for some time. And so it is allowing me to do the kind of work that I've been wanting to do and to have people actually really excited about investing in it. That's amazing. I know you've been in this work for quite a while, so I'd love to hear more about that. Like, I know you and your family are in the work, but what what exactly are you doing in social justice currently? So there are kind of a few things. And I think for me, I bring this social justice lens to everything that I do. So it's just almost like I am a um, multifaceted person and I have lots going on. So I guess just to give a bit of a background so that it all makes sense, I I own two laser and wax bars for any Canadians who might be listening, um, <laughs> wax on if you're familiar with the brand. Yeah. Uh, and I have a coaching and consulting practice um, where I do uh, leadership development work and program design for um, businesses and sort of like strategic planning. And I also am a learning and development professional. So I work with a law firm um, and for a law firm to designing and developing all of their learning and development programming for the lawyers. And so there are a lot of things that I'm doing and bringing that kind of social justice lens to all, all of it. That doesn't even actually get into my passion projects. We can talk about that later, but yeah. yeah. I want to hear about those. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a sort of a delve into podcasting, but I bring the social justice lens to everything that I do. And a huge part of, of that for me is my life purpose is is really all about supporting people to realize their potential um, and to see the world of possibilities that exist and to be willing to actually live into that world of possibility beyond like the social constructs that we're so often constrained by. And so a part of that, I believe is true. And I, I think that we are usually our biggest obstacle to getting to where we want to go. And I also recognize that when I with, you know, that sort of social justice lens, that's not always the case for everyone. And there are a lot of people who, yes, I believe can get to wherever they want to go and start at a huge disadvantage and have way more obstacles um, that they face. And so what I like to do in whatever role I'm in, whatever organization I'm working with, is I really always have that lens on or try to, so that we can also look at where does the playing field need to be leveled? Where are there inequities? Where can we be doing a better job at making sure that either like this workplace or this world is more diverse, more inclusive, more equitable, so that everybody equally has a shot to realize their potential. Yeah. And I really want to highlight what you said, because um, a lot of the coaching industry, you know, for the past 20 years hasn't exactly sold. I mean, what we've been selling is everybody can have the life of their dreams, right? And what mm-hmm. I love that you're you're bringing into the conversation as a coach who's been in this work for a while, by the way. Another thing that I love about you is we're we're saying social justice a lot right now in this space, but you didn't just jump on this bandwagon. <laughs> You've been here a while. 
So uh, I think that you of all people highlight and model that this is a marathon. It's not a sprint and it's a lifelong journey. Um, And so what I hear you bringing to your coaching, which is different, is where are people at and where can you meet them at with your coaching? What do you think that the coaching industry needs in terms of social justice? I think, um, honestly, I think that uh, the programs that are training coaches and certifying coaches need to do a far better job of outreach and also providing sliding scale opportunities for Mm -hmm. people of color and people from diverse backgrounds to be able to get into coaching. The barrier financially is high for a Mm -hmm. lot of people. And so I think that that needs to be uh, a priority and I'm starting to see that shift happening. And I think that's obviously really exciting. Um, I think just that's a huge part of it. I think also that giving people coaching is expensive. And, and so for coaches to involve in, in their practice, sliding scale spots for clients and doing some pro bono work and really making sure that coaching services are available in a meaningful way to people who wouldn't otherwise have access. I think there's a ton of opportunity in the coaching space to have a huge impact. Mm, Beautiful. I heard a little bit about how you build your practice, even as a coach for, to include social justice. Is there anything else you're doing in, as turn, in terms of building your practice as a coach to open up the doors for diversity? Yeah, so I always have sliding spots and pro bono uh, okay. spots available in my practice. Um, and also I lead retreats and uh, do outreach around making sure that there are uh, sliding scale spots available for our retreats and they are like, priority for those spots is given to black indigenous and people of color and uh, trans folks. So really trying to make sure that not only are we giving the opportunity to people who might not otherwise be able to access it, but also that we're actually like creating a diverse inclusive space within that retreat to lead retreats and uh, do outreach around making sure that there are uh, sliding scale spots available for our retreats and priority for those spots is given to Black, Indigenous, and people of color and uh, trans folks. So really try that not only are we giving the opportunity to people who might not otherwise be able to access it, but also that we're actually like creating a diverse, inclusive space within that retreat to expose the people in the group to more diverse thought. That's how we, you know, will really learn and grow and thrive is the more diverse, um, you know, people and thoughts that we have around the table. So. That's amazing. Yeah. Thanks for being a coach that has your eye on that from the very beginning. It's so cool. Um, tell me about some of your passion projects. There are so many, but <laughs> um, the thing that I'm most excited about and that also feels a little bit like the farthest off, but I'm always excited to share about is um, I've been, my brainchild for some time has been a podcast that's focused on highlighting the struggles that formerly incarcerated people face when they are released. So um, again, it kind of came from me thinking about this idea of, yeah, okay, we all have the ability to reach our potential. There are people who are just starting at such a disadvantage. And I've spent time working within the criminal justice system and 
um, also in prisons. And I've seen firsthand that for better or for worse and agree or disagree, we've created as a society a system where you are convicted of a crime and there's an amount of time that you serve and then you get out and you're supposed to do life and or continue your life. And the reality is that you can't. That time spent, that conviction is so often a mark forever and it takes so much to overcome it. And so I kind of, as I was thinking about this, it's something that like would keep me up at night. And I, so I was kind of like, okay, what, what can I do one person? And this is, I think, often where we start and people get really overwhelmed is this idea of like, okay, I'm just one person there's this problem. I see that it's real, but what can I do to have an impact that's meaningful and long lasting? And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And I came to the conclusion that I think I've had that exposure to the justice system. So I've really seen it firsthand and I've gotten to know people in jails and know, really see the humanity in these people who are being really almost like tattooed with the worst thing they've ever done. And so often are in that situation because they didn't necessarily have the means of actually defending themselves properly. They, the justice system itself is so broken and there are so many barriers to being able to actually effectively participate in the system. And so, um, and so I kind of said, I want to open eyes to this issue and to, to the humanity of the people that we're talking about. Like, I think that there are so many employers out there who, whether they're allowed to or not, will ask questions about people's criminal history or will make, will draw inferences about people's criminal history based on large gaps on their resumes and whatever the case may be. And the reality is that for so many jobs, it doesn't matter. So if it does, then for sure, that's kind of in a different category. But I think there's so much room for, compassion and compassionate leadership. And that's a huge focus of my leadership. And so, yeah, so that that's this project that I'm working on. It's kind of like serial meets looking at life after prison. And so it's kind of a big project, Yes, um, but slowly chipping away at it and hoping that we'll be able to launch at some point in 2021. When did your interest become focused on the prison system and what happens when you are released and like, when did you start getting curious about that? So I guess I might actually take it like the, the, the foundation of my interest in, in social justice, which really started with my parents. And we kind of touched on this briefly, but my parents from as far back as I can remember. And I know pretty much from the time I could speak would have conversations with me about difference and how it's something to be celebrated and how important it is for me if I see somebody who's being picked on or treated unfairly because of, you know, their intellectual ability or the color of their skin or any other reason that not only that that's not okay, but also that I need to stand up and say something. And so that was just ingrained in me from the time really from as far back as I can remember. And they didn't just talk about it. They also modeled it. My dad is also a lawyer. Well, both my parents are lawyers and my dad is practicing and he has done a lot of pro bono work to really try to move the dial on social issues over the course of his career. And those were always the things that he would highlight at home and talk to us about. And my mom left private practice and started an organization called Peace Builders 
and Peace Builders does restorative justice diversion work with youth in the criminal justice system. So basically trying to get kids out of the system without charges or convictions attached to their names, but creating opportunities for meaningful dialogue so that they can understand where they went wrong, the impact that they had, and, and getting them engaged in positive activities so that they can move forward. And so I've spent a lot of time working with peace builders, volunteering with peace builders. If you know my family, you've probably <laughs> been forced to support peace builders <laughs> in some way, shape, or form, or many. And um, as, as is appropriate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Meaning like, yes. Everybody yeah. should support it. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's an unbelievable organization. The impact is massive. And um, and so that's really where it started. And there was a period of time where I was running the youth programming for Peace Builders. And so one of the programs that we used to run, there was a, a kids jail in downtown Toronto that actually doesn't exist anymore. But um, but I worked there and I ran um, discussion circles. And we had Yeah, it sounds like you're already coaching program. there. <laughs> Yeah, I was. Yeah. <laughs> Even before you were coaching. Yeah, so that's really where it started. And I think just seeing the impact that the system has on young people, for sure, who many of whom, you know, start young and then just end up in the system. That's beautiful. For many years to come. So one, really looking at a kind of a systemic way to break that cycle. And I think for now my focus isn't on changing the system, which needs to happen and feels bigger than me at the moment, but looking at like, okay, if this is the system that we're working with, how can we do a better job of supporting people who've been through it? Yeah. I love that because my, my next question for you is as somebody who's been in this journey for a long time, right? Cause some people, as we've seen, are just coming to the table and waking up to what's actually going on. How do you take care of yourself in the midst of all this? Because this is this is a common thing I'm hearing with my clients, right? Like they're just learning about oppression or systemic oppression and what how it all looks. And um, oftentimes they're overwhelmed, they're shell shocked. You know, there's there's lots of different varieties of emotions. And so for somebody who's been in social justice work for a long time, how do you keep yourself um, positive or take care of yourself to stay in the fight. So important. There are many ways I try to get outside and have a long walk with my dog every morning in nature. I'm lucky to live. I live in downtown Toronto, but right. We have an amazing ravine system. And so I can really get completely that engulfed in nature very close to my house, which is amazing. So I try to do that every day, um, really grounds me and just kind of helps set me up for success. I meditate. I'm not the best in terms of consistency, but I try to be consistent and it's definitely really helpful. I think too, I mean, it's like, there's so many things, what I put into my body, but I also think just remembering that if you start getting sucked into the hole of despair, it's really hard to take action and to do anything. And so figure out what it is that's, you know, causing you 
trouble that the, there are so many things that are going on right now that need to change. And there are so many things going on right now that if you read the news, like you can so easily just get into that spiral. And so trying to rise above it and say, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that needs to change. And what's something that I can do? What's one meaningful thing, whether it's like a bigger project, like the podcast, or whether it's like going and handing out food to you know, people who don't have access to it, or whether it's making a donation somewhere or whatever it is, making sure that there's some way that you're giving your time or your energy to help other people actually is, I think it's like the number one thing. Yeah. The action, the daily action is what I'm hearing and then holding yeah. yourself accountable to it. Yeah. yeah. Cause I know I often get, get overwhelmed when, you know, my, my mind immediately went to, Oh, when she does this podcast, we can build entire systems, coaching systems where we go into every prison in America. Right. And I just How noticed. How awesome that, would that be? Right. It, well, and we will do it because yeah, we are powerful okay. women. We will, we will actually do that. And the thing is, is it's like, if for me, when I go that big with vision, I have to remind myself again, every day, what's the small action towards that. And that's what I hear you're pointing to is yeah. that it can really just be one thing every day that moves you closer and closer to that goal. Yeah. Especially if it's your, I'm here for life to fight for people. Yeah. 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 Super cool. What do you hope happens through your work? So what I'm present to is you're doing a lot of work uh, for social justice. And what do you hope to see on the other side with your life's work? Like what's the legacy you want to leave behind? I think my hope would be to inspire more people to have that lens, to take that lens with them. And it's not about, yes, I come from a position of privilege for so many reasons and there's nothing I can do to change that. So it's not about feeling you know, guilty or sorry for where I've come from. It's actually just about taking that lens and seeing how I can do a better job of making sure that that playing field is more level. And I think my goal is really to inspire others to do the same. Mm, beautiful. What's the biggest limiting belief you've had to get over, not only to become a coach, but to continue doing work in social justice? It's funny because my, I've, I've mentioned this, like my, my life purpose is really about helping other people and supporting people to realize their potential. And for me, feeling like I'm not living up to my potential has been my number one limiting belief, constantly questioning where I'm at, um, how far I've come, how far I have to go, where I'm at in relation to other people. Like it's, it's something that has been built in. I, ha I have ADD. Um, this is actually the first time I'm really like very publicly saying this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so honored. I've been comfortable sharing, like sharing with people for some time, but I think it's actually so important because for, I know for others who grew up with ADD, particularly like at the time, probably 20 years ago when I was finally diagnosed, it wasn't as diagnosed or talked about as it is now. And so their indicators were all there. And if I was engaged in school, I was a hundred percent in and I would do really well. And if I wasn't engaged, I was super distracting and I much to my parents and teachers chagrin. I was just not, I was not helpful or productive. Mm. And so I often was told that I wasn't living up to my potential. Like, wow. Constantly. And it's not just me. I know that other people who have learning disabilities or are sort of differently learning abled 
are in the same boat and I've had these conversations with so many people. And so when you're constantly told that it just sticks and it's taken a lot that now I, I see it happening and I recognize it. And so I can say, okay, this is my story and that's fine. And then I can work around it, but it's very much still there. Yeah. Same, same stories for my brothers, exactly the same thing, you know, and same limiting beliefs that they have had to deal with. And, and if you're like me our limiting beliefs, I think some people think that you'll just get over it someday. And for me, they still come up every day. It's just now we have more ability to see outside of it, or maybe that there's more possibility in the graciousness of loving that part of ourselves. which is actually what I heard you just do. You're like, I'm embracing it. (laughs) This is who I am, you know? And and I, re- I just remember the sense of freedom. I mean, I have a mild form of dyslexia and I notice it in all over my writing everywhere. And it was the same feeling as you of just like, okay, I embrace me. And now it's so funny. I don't even really think about it because then people will point it out. I'll be like, do you know how often you do this and you're like texting or you're writing? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I got. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> So totally. thank you for the courage to share it here. Super cool. It's great. So if you're like me, you, do you have any like a, a universe spirit, any kind of belief that you believe in? Yes, yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, so is, is it the universe or what do I you call really, it? I kind of refer to it as whatever, right? Like it's kind of like the universe spirit, God, source, whatever, whatever it is anyone believes in. Like I don't have a... I probably would most likely refer to it as the universe um, in conversation, but yeah, I don't. Yeah. I call it the universe too. I'm the same way. I'm like, ah, the universe. Yeah. <laughs> but if the universe is with you, how is it supporting you through your work? I mean, in I believe always in every way, it's supporting me by um, creating resistance when I'm not on the right path. So like that, the end of my time in law, I got to a point that I actually couldn't do the work anymore. Like I was sitting at my desk and I couldn't, nothing was coming out. And I hear that often from people. I I work with people through career transitions a lot. And I will sort of say to people, it's like, have you reached the point of no return? That point where you know you can't do it anymore and you can't unknow it. It's like, it's over. And so I feel like there's a, a little part of that, right? It's like, it creates resistance. It creates more resistance. Finally, it's like no wrong direction. And also supports me by having the opportunities that need to show up, show up. And so you just got to keep your eyes open. I love that to relate it to um, like just whatever it's trying to tell you or the resistance is coming up. That's great. That's quotable. <laughs> like, are you having resistance right now? Let's get curious. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Zoe. So if you had a megaphone and you had to make a statement to the world, what would you say through your megaphone? Dream big, get out of your own way and let the magic unfold. Aww, that's beautiful. Yeah. Zoe, you're incredible. Thank you for the work you're doing in the world. And thank you for sharing all your gifts here for the world to hear about and see and come find you. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 